It's my joy to open with you God's word. We can hear from our God. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, and so you can begin making your way there in your Bibles. Hebrews chapter 4. This book of Hebrews, written by an unknown author, was, was delivered to a group of people, most likely Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians were struggling to hold fast to Jesus Christ. In the face of trial, they were under pressure to revert back to Judaism. That is, to, to old covenant law-keeping as a means of pursuing a relationship with God. And so in order to correct this fatal mistake, the author takes up his pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he encourages the believers by showing the superiority of Jesus Christ over all things. Including the old covenant the sacrifices, and the whole system. We might say the theme of the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ. One writer says succinctly, Jesus is better. And we, though removed from this original audience by many years, are not unlike them in that we too must be reminded of the superiority of of Jesus, in order that we may hold fast our confession and draw near to God. So I would invite you to stand now in honor of God, and we're going to read together from Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Please be seated. Our Father, we thank you this morning that we can draw near to your throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And we confess this morning that we are a needy people. And so we ask that you come and help us. Help us understand your word that we may know you more and that we might magnify Christ in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We're here this morning as the church, as a people who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Some, having been raised in the church, came to faith in Jesus Christ at a very young age, and, and some have been walking with him as faithful followers of Jesus for 30, 40, some, I would venture to say, more than 50 years. Others were saved a bit later in life, and have been walking with the Lord for 10 or 20 years, and there are others who have just recently come to faith in Jesus. God saved me when I was in my early 20s, and I remember 
Soon after this, someone coming to me and telling me, the battle has just begun. Because there's an adversary who wants to destroy you. All of us, regardless of when we were saved, are engaged in this battle. We do have an adversary who is seeking to destroy us. But there's also a battle that's going on internally. It's a battle of belief. It's a battle to believe that the blood of Christ is sufficient not only to save us, but to keep us. And sometimes when we look at our lives, we consider where our our thoughts have been over the past week. We hear the words that have come spewing out of our mouths. We've seen our actions and we're grieved Many of us struggle to believe that God welcomes us into his presence and that there in God's presence we find grace for every failure. In this passage of Hebrews, we're offered hope. For here we understand that Jesus, our great high priest, has made it possible for us to come confidently to God. There are two exhortations for us in this passage. The first one is this. Since Jesus is our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Since Jesus is our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. What is it about Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest that calls for this exhortation to hold fast? The first thing we see is that Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. And in order to understand this, we we have to go all the way back to the beginning, to the garden. The fall in the Garden of Eden. And from that time, mankind has been separated from holy God by sin. As we read through Scripture, we see the holiness of God revealed and the sinfulness of man. So holy is God that any attempt to approach Him in a way that He has not prescribed resulted in death. But God in His mercy made a way through the sacrificial system in which his holy presence could come and dwell among a sinful people. Through a system of sacrifices, the people could be cleansed. They could be cleansed from the defilement left by sin. And the culmination of this system took place on the day referred to as the Day of Atonement. And on this day, the high priest would enter the most holy place. He would enter this holy place and he would would sprinkle blood from a sacrifice in this place called the Holy of Holies. There, before the Ark of the Covenant, he would sprinkle blood there and make atonement or cleansing for the sins of the people. 
This holy place was separated from the other room there in the tent by a curtain. And in this holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant were the cherubim with their wings outstretched. And it was there in that place that God said, my presence will dwell. And on the Day of Atonement, the priest would would first cleanse himself, and then he would make his way through the tent into this holy place, but only in the way that was prescribed, lest he die. The glory of, the, of God was so great and so terrifying that the priest had to scoop up a censer full of coals and take some incense and drop it on the coals. And when this happened, a smoke was created. And so as he moves towards this most holy place and he he peels back the curtain, the smoke would fill the holy of holies and serve as a shield from the presence of God, lest he die. The high priest on the Day of Atonement would offer sacrifices to purify the sanctuary from its defilement. Sacrifices to to cleanse himself from the defilement and from the defilement of the people. And this happened year after year. Decade after decade, century after century. And along with this came this constant reminder of the defilement of sin. The book of Hebrews presents Jesus Christ as the great high priest, the one superior to the Levitical high priests of the Old Covenant. These high priests passed through an earthly tent, and they made their way into the Holy of Holies one time each year, this perpetual sacrifice. But the text before us says Jesus Our great high priest has passed through the heavens. In Hebrews 9.11 we read, But when Christ appeared as as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens and offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. Therefore, we hold fast our confession. Incidentally, what is this confession that we are holding fast The confession for believers both then and now is that Jesus Christ is our salvation. We believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he was both fully God and fully man, that he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross. And there on the cross, he absorbed the full wrath of God for sins, for all who would believe. We confess, 
We believe that he rose from the dead on the third day and he ascended to the Father's right hand where he is presently making intercession for the saints. This is our confession. Furthermore, we believe that salvation is a gift of grace. And that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins will be saved. We proclaim with the Apostle Paul in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The result of Jesus, our great high priest, passing through the heavens is that the debt that we deserve to pay because of our sins has been paid in full. Our great high priest offered himself up as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down. And in so doing, he declares, it is finished. The work is done. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The debt has been paid in full. Some years ago, Kristen and I were out for dinner. And as we're making our way to the table to sit down, we bumped into a couple whom we hadn't seen for, for quite some time. And after we, you know, hello, how are you? Nice to see you. Some small talk. We, we found our table and we enjoyed our meal together. And when it came time to leave, the waitress would come and bring a check. And she said, someone here has taken care of this for you. There's nothing more to pay. The bill that we owed had been taken care of. The debt had been paid. Our debt has been paid in full by Jesus, our great high priest. No more payment is required. Therefore, hold fast our confession. Not only has Jesus passed through the heavens as our great high priest, but Jesus is a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Not only that, he has endured every temptation that we are tempted, and yet, he's without sin. How is it that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses? The God-man? Our weaknesses abound, don't they? We get sick. We need rest. We're fearful. We're doubting, we hurt, we suffer, and in our weaknesses, sometimes we ask, does God know? Does God care? Remember our confession? We believe that Jesus came in the flesh. He was fully man and fully God, a mystery, that we can't comprehend, and yet God in his great plan of salvation, he ordained that this must be the way for us to be redeemed. 
Speaking about Jesus, again, the writer of Hebrews, this book is is full of uh, theology of Christ. And he says in in chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation speaks of of forgiveness and satisfaction of God's wrath. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he is like us. He's intimately acquainted with us with us as men and women who carry flesh and blood. He knows what it's like to experience the things we're experiencing. Sometimes when we're struggling, we, we like to sit with someone and kind of pour out our hearts, share with them the struggles that we're facing and the hurt we're hurting. Jesus, our sympathetic high priest, hears us. He hears our cries. He knows our concerns. He identifies with our weaknesses. Hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Jesus hears our cry. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he knows what we're enduring. Sometimes we seek to comfort those who are, who are hurting with words like, I understand and I know what you mean. But often we don't know. We really don't know what it feels like to endure some of the intense suffering that some of you are facing. But Christ does. He knows what it is to hurt. And he knows what it is to suffer. It is he who was beaten and mocked and abused and misrepresented and gossiped about, and given up on, and betrayed, and falsely accused. We have a sympathetic high priest. Not only is Jesus, the Son of God, intimately acquainted with our weaknesses, but he too has been tempted just as we are, and yet without sin. Yet without sin. Consider this. There there is no temptation that we are facing that Christ, our great high priest, has not only faced, but has endured perfectly. He endured the most intense temptation that one could endure. Why? Because he endured to the end. Think of this. At what point is the temptation most intense? It's at the point where we either either succumb to the temptation or by God's grace that temptation is removed. 
Listen to the way C.S. Lewis describes this, this battle. He says, A silly idea is current that is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The point is that Christ endured every temptation to the breaking point. Therefore, we can trust him. We can trust that he knows what it's like, and we can trust in his perfect obedience for our sake. This perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness that's imputed to us by faith. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. What does it mean to hold fast? It simply means to adhere to, to cling to. Because Jesus is the Son of God, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He's offered himself up as a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He's intimately acquainted with our weaknesses. He's endured every temptation, yet without sin. Because of this, we can hold fast to him. We hold fast our confession. In a pluralistic culture that espouses many ways to God. But we hear the words of our Lord who said of himself, I am the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. We hold fast this confession in the classroom and in the workplace and in our neighborhoods and in our home and in our own hearts. When we're prone to wander, when we struggle with unbelief, we cry out to our God, help and we believe that he will. How do we hold fast this confession? We do so in his strength and by his grace. Think of it like this. I can remember when our, uh, some of our kids were younger, the neighbor had a, a little jungle gym. And uh, it was time to teach them how to climb the monkey bars. And so I can remember coming under them and bending down and scooping up their little body and lifting them up and watching their little chubby hands wrap around the bars. And I would kind of take their legs, right, and hold them like this, hold their legs. And we would encourage them to reach out, right, go for the next bar. And they would do this gladly. Why? Because they knew that dad was underneath them holding up their legs. Right? They're clinging here. And I'm holding them. Our God holds us. We're called to hold fast our confession, but we do so knowing that he's holding us. We're comforted in what he says, I will never leave you. I will never 
forsake you. We were saved by grace and we continue by grace. So we conclude that since Jesus is our great high priest, the one who has passed through the heavens, he who sympathizes with our weaknesses, he who has endured every temptation yet without sin, because of these things we hold fast our confession. The second exhortation builds on the first, and it's this, since Jesus is our great high priest, let us draw near to God. Since Jesus is our great high priest, let us draw near to God. When we began, we acknowledged that many of us struggle to believe that God welcomes us into his presence. And that there in his presence, we find grace for every failure. But here in verse 16, we have hope. One of my favorite songs that we sing here at Bethany Community Church is a song called Behold Our God. And in the chorus, we sing these words. Behold our God, seated where? On his throne. Behold our God, seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Our God rules from his throne. He reigns from his throne in the heavens. He rules over all. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation describes his vision of God upon his throne in this way. He says in chapter 4, in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This vision of the throne of God is glorious and awesome and terrifying. It's through Jesus, our great high priest, that we're not only able but commanded to draw near to this throne, to this throne of grace. And not only to draw near but to do so with confidence. How can this be? We draw near because our great high priest has made the throne of judgment a throne of grace. The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, has taken on himself our sins. He's fully absorbed God's wrath for those sins, thus satisfying God. And he has reconciled the unrighteous sinner to himself. He's purchased us by his blood, by giving of himself the once for all sacrifice. This means there's nothing more to pay. 
That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We draw near to the throne of grace because of what Christ has done. He has passed through the heavens. He was the propitiation for our sins. Our feelings tell us something different often. We must stop. And we must think through what the Scripture says. Why is it that we can approach holy God with confidence? It's because we have a Savior who has made a way for us. He has paid a debt that I could never pay, and He's paid it in full. And while this is immeasurably good news for all who are trusting in Christ... For those who are not trusting in Christ, for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, this throne of grace we've been talking about remains a throne of judgment. Hear the words of the author of Hebrews when he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today means now. Today means today. There is opportunity to be reconciled to this holy God by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And we who are in Christ Jesus must also heed the words of instruction to exhort one another every day so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we understand why we can draw near and why we must draw near to the throne of grace. Indeed, we draw near with confidence. But what is it we will receive when we come here to this throne of grace? The wrath of God has been satisfied and we receive mercy. We draw near to God through Christ and receive mercy. Who of us sitting here today can say that we aren't desperate for mercy? Who of us can say we have no need of grace? We draw near in prayer. We pour out our hearts to our God. Oh, my Father, I'm feeling anxious today. I need you. My God, I haven't spoke to my daughter for six weeks, and I'm grieved by this strain in our relationship. I need you. God, I've been fighting this sin, this same sin that dogs my steps. It's been doing so for 30 years and I can't seem to break free. I need you. What does the text say we will receive when we draw near to this throne of grace? It says we will receive mercy. We will receive mercy. Think about about mercy Think about mercy as compassion toward a person in a pitiable condition. Jesus told a parable. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And in this parable, he tells of a man who's making his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And on his way, he's attacked by robbers and he's beaten, stripped of his possessions and left for dead. And as he's lying there, a a priest comes along and he sees this, this man who had been beaten and he steps over to the other side and continues on his way. And then along comes a Levite, another holy man. These two holy men come and they see this man who's been beaten. And he too passes to the other side and and continues on his way. And then the Lord says, along came a Samaritan. Samaritans were despised by the Jews. And here the Samaritan sees the man who had been beaten. And he kneels down and he, he picks up the man and he begins to bind up his wounds. And he picks him up and he puts him on his own animal. And he leads him away to an inn. And he talks to the innkeeper there and he says, essentially, whatever it takes to to get this man back on his feet, do it. And when I come, I will make sure that, that you are taken care of. I'll make it right with you. And after telling this story, Jesus turns to the man who asked the question and he asks this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man to whom Jesus spoke answered in this way, The one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. We find ourselves in a most pitiable condition. As we struggle in the weakness of our flesh and our Heavenly Father invites us to come to Him, to come to His throne of grace that we may receive mercy from His hand. Not only do we receive mercy, but we find grace to help in time of need. God's grace is really beyond our comprehension, isn't it? God is not stingy with grace. He doesn't measure out grace as a, I've heard it described as as a little eyedropper. God's not like us. He lavishes his grace upon his people. His grace is great. He extends to his children the grace we so desperately need in the times we so desperately need it. Our needs are great. Our sins are great. But his grace is greater, James says. But he gives more grace. And so the exhortation is to come boldly. It's to come with confidence to God's throne. And yet, we struggle to do so. What inhibits us from coming to our God? Though we list a a thousand reasons why we don't come to our God, what undergirds all of this is, is unbelief. Unbelief in the God of Scripture Because we are weak, because we are frail, and because of remaining indwelling sin, we struggle to believe that God is who he says he is. And sometimes, instead of allowing Scripture to shape our view of God, we fashion God in our own image. It's inconceivable to us that a person who knows all the dirt on us would welcome us 
into his presence. And so rather than running to God, we run away. But this misconception about who God is must be corrected. The scripture, as we've been expounding this morning, says that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. He's made a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. He's, he's torn open the curtain and given us access to God, to the very throne of God, this throne of grace. Our Heavenly Father stands, as it were, with His arms wide opening, open, welcoming us, calling us to come to receive mercy and to find grace to help. We're called to believe what God says about himself when he says, I am merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and I abound in steadfast love. Believe God when he beckons us, come all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Sometimes we wonder, is God angry with me? Is God angry with me? What has happened to God's anger towards sin? The scripture says that the wrath of God has been poured out on his son. If you're in Christ Jesus, God is not angry. God deals with us as sons and daughters. He welcomes us. How often do we come to the throne of grace? Answer, every day. Every day we draw near to the throne of grace. Knowing that he gives more grace. We acknowledge our struggle to believe that we can come to God. But we've seen that Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. He's offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice. He's intimately acquainted with our weaknesses. He's endured every temptation yet without sin. And we're invited to the very presence of God. Because of our great high priest, we are able to come to God with confidence, knowing that we are welcomed by our good and gracious Heavenly Father. So hold fast your confession and draw near to God. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have made a way for sinners to be reconciled to yourself. Thank you that you call us to come to you daily, to know that we can approach your throne of grace to receive mercy and how needy we are for mercy help us this week to cling to christ our hope in whose name we pray amen